Welcome everyone to the CEO.Digital show. My name is Craig McCartney and I'll be your host that's going to guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-suite executives, those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the show today. Today's guest is Rachel Greaves, CEO and founder of Castle Point Systems. Rachel is a thought leader in the cybersecurity and information management space. She has consulted on large-scale audits and projects for security and records in government and regulated industries with complex integrated environments. Rachel also developed Castle Point to ease tensions between compliance, usability, sustainability, and cost. And not only does she hold multiple certificates in her field, she was also awarded Female RegTech Entrepreneur of the Year in 2022 and Australia's most outstanding woman in IT. Great accolades. Very much looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to the CEO.digital show, Rachel. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. So let's start right from the top, the work that you're doing at Castle Point right now. Obviously, I did a quick intro into some of your experience, but can you tell me about you and your journey to creating or setting up Castle Point and then what Castle Point does? Yeah, I sure can. So my background is in audit mostly. So I've been a security and compliance auditor, mostly for federal government in Australia. So large agencies like Defence, for example, auditing their information control, mostly auditing failures of information control to understand what went wrong and why and what could have been done differently. So I did that for a long time. And I think the last project that I audited that was then cancelled following my audit was worth nearly $3 billion. (laughs) And that didn't really feel like the kind of thing I wanted my legacy to be, (laughs) really, is ruining everybody's day all the time. But it failed because it needed to fail, and, and so did every audit that I ever failed, which was actually almost all of them, I think. And what I found doing that consistently was that these organisations really just didn't have a chance to succeed. They never could have succeeded in complying with their obligations, number one, because of the kind of technology that was available or rather not available to them in the market. They just couldn't succeed no matter how hard they tried. And number two, what I discovered was that the implications and the impacts of these failures went a lot broader and a lot deeper and were a lot pointier than I think the organisations themselves realised. We saw downstream effects of really significant and sometimes catastrophic harm on individual people in the community because of these failures of governance back up at the top of the chain. So all of that, I guess, was the inspiration for coming up with a different way to do things, setting a new expectation and having to essentially invent a new kind of technology that would make it possible to achieve that expectation. So that's what we did. So with our consulting company, which we started in 2012, we started working on the software in about 2014, I think we had a a sort of a beta and, and played around with it. 
and then we launched it in 2018, end of 2018, and I think January 2019 had the first federal government clients. So, yeah, we're five years on from that now with a really great presence across central government in Australia and New Zealand and now starting in the UK and the US and also broadening out into commercial as well. Yeah. And in terms of those topics, you know, governance, risk, they can sometimes be seen as a box-ticking exercise. But I guess what do you want more people to understand about your work and the implications it has on real people in the world? Yeah, it does feel like compliance is just about red tape, but it isn't. So, for example, in Australia, we had an issue where a very vulnerable woman called Vivian Salon, she was found in a park with a head injury wandering around. She had a mental illness and she was then deported by our government unlawfully because she was a citizen. She was deported to the Philippines and left in a home for the dying and destitute for years, actually, until a good Samaritan tracked her down. They just couldn't find her record in their system. So this vulnerable woman slipped through the cracks because the IT system wasn't searchable. You know, they had her record, it was there, but the system was configured in such a way that it made it too hard to find. So that's just one example. And and that, unfortunately, is a really common example. So I think the policing database in the UK had around maybe 400 pieces of missed information about the man who would become the Manchester terrorist bomber. And an inquiry found that if that information had been findable, if that system had been searchable and more usable, that that event probably would have been avoided. So we're talking deportation, dispossession, death, destruction, all avoidable if we do the right thing and manage our information. And that's just the discovery side. You know, we've seen lots and lots of issues where information has been kept for too long and then has been spilled and that's caused enormous harm. Information hasn't been kept long enough and that's denied people access to reparations and compensation and proper support. Information's been shared with people it shouldn't be shared with or it hasn't been shared when it should be shared. There are so many examples of mishandling of information that technically were just a compliance breach, right, but in practice caused harm. Yeah, it's such a simple thing, isn't it? Searchable information that the yeah, repercussions can be devastating. And in terms of the work that you're doing, are there any sort of standouts, I don't want to say achievements, but is there anything that you're proud of in terms of working in that space and working with police departments, governments, where Castle Point has made a real difference? Yeah, so many. And that's what's most rewarding. It really is a 180 from my old career, <laughs> which was giving everyone the bad news. Now we get to give people the good news. And sometimes it's in a bad situation. So, you know, recently we got a call from a university that had been breached by a foreign state actor posing as an international student. Uh, this is really common now. The higher education sector is, is very vulnerable to foreign state actors and really any kind of bad actor because university systems are full of personal information, they're full of sensitive data, they're full of intellectual property, and they're very porous, you know, and they're very large. So they're really key targets. But anyway, this university had been breached, worst case scenario for them. And this actor had exfiltrated all of the content from a couple of hundred Microsoft Teams environments. And of course, they didn't know what that meant 
for them. They could see that it had happened, but they didn't know what to do about it. So they called us on the Friday night and um, we implemented in their production environment and we used Castle Point to run across all of that data that had been spilled and we coded their secrecy provisions under law. So different acts and regulations have different penalties in them for allowing unauthorised access to certain kinds of data. And that can be really weird things you would never have thought of, but there's technically a law about it. So we were able to code their secrecy provisions and run that across the data to determine how many kind of years of jail time it represented and how many millions in civil penalties it represented. And we coded their records retention schedule to determine which of that spilled data should have already been disposed of, which also goes to liability. If you're holding on to things longer than you should, we're seeing more and more now with big breaches that this has really come to the fore as a key part of managing cyber risk is managing your records retention. And we coded some specific ontologies relevant to their risk. So they were worried about aviation research and thesis reviews and things that are sensitive in their particular context. So we ran that across the data too. So all of that was done by Saturday afternoon. And that meant that on Sunday morning, they could go and report to the executive and say, look, this is the impact of the breach. This is the actual quantified impact. And that's something I always spent my career trying to do as an auditor is actually to quantify what the impact is. And as a human being, you can only do that based on sampling, you know. But with AI, we can do it at scale and we can do it very fast and we can do it much more accurately, actually, than a human can. So we're able now to provide that evidence. So that helps recover from a breach, which is really important. That remediation step and notification and lessons learned is really key. But, of course, that university then kept Castle Point in place and now it helps them prevent that kind of thing happening because it knows everything going on in the environment all the time and it can flag when something risky pops up so they can go and do some whack-a-mole and whack it back down again. And also they know what they can dispose of as soon as they can dispose of it so they can reduce that threat surface over time. Yeah, and you mentioned universities are easily well they're easily targeted for their personal information you mentioned research as well are are they also being targeted for research that students are doing that could be useful to other governments they definitely are you know my background is in obviously the the kind of defense intelligence space and i think in the public domain we don't really understand threats so we of course learn about all of that and we're immersed in that in the kind of line of work that I've been in. So we sort of know and understand it. But I think the public broadly and organisations and even boards and committees and executives don't really understand the scope of the different threats in the environment. They don't really know what foreign state actors are looking for. They don't know how sophisticated they are. They don't know how motivated they are. They don't know the modus operandi. They should because all that information is accessible, if not in the public domain, then through channels, through government. Australia's just changed our laws to really focus on critical industry, particularly, and making sure they're brought into the fold of national security. Because what people often don't realise is that the way foreign state actors work is essentially to assemble as much information as possible, and then to be, be positioned and prepared to act. So in the event of a conflict, they can just turn off the lights because they're already embedded in the airports and the train lines and the hospital systems and the banking systems, you know, the food supply and ready to pull the plug 
because that system's been infiltrated. But the way we infiltrate systems is through exploiting people, usually. So the way we exploit people is we get as much information about them as possible. So if you look just at my university, the Australian National University is where I did my degree. In 2018, they were hacked by a foreign state actor who is known but who shall not be named. And that foreign state actor took 19 years' worth of information on students and staff members. So that foreign state actor got all of my personal information, including my tax file number and financial information, sucked all that up at the time. But I had graduated 15 years earlier and they should have only retained my record for seven years. And in fact, 60% of us in that spill shouldn't have been in it by rights. So again, by not managing the life cycle of records compliantly, they'd over-retained, the threat surface was way larger than it needed to be and many more people affected. But interestingly, that foreign state actor now have my information, someone who went on to found a cyber company that is a sovereign technology for the Australian government. So straight away you've got a problem, you've got a compromise risk there. But also the ANU has a National Security Policy Institute, so it works very closely with the Defence Department in Australia. And the ANU also is the university that's produced the most politicians in Australia and prime ministers. So when you have this aggregated information and you can build these profiles, you're exposing not just those individuals and not just your reputation as an organisation, but also the potential national security of the whole country. And you just have to be able to think forward to what could someone do with this information and what would they do And that's something that we don't have really enough imagination for in the general public. Yeah, that's interesting. Did they do anything with all of that data or was it stuff that you won't really have heard about or felt unless it's happened directly to you? The thing about the best breaches is you'll never know. You won't know until it's too late. So, you know, it's almost a relief when we see a big data breach and we see details pop up for sale on the dark web or we see ransomware demands because we know the motivation of those threat actors and we can mitigate against those kind of risks. What we need to be concerned about is information that's collected that is just sat on and used to build those profiles. It's so risky to hold information about people, particularly information that's sensitive, and we over-collect it and we definitely over-retain it. Just coming back here to the UK a couple of months ago, I was asked to send a scan of my passport to the real estate agent. I was asked to send a scan of my passport to the dog transport company, right? Everybody wants your personal information or they think they do until they have a breach and then they realise they shouldn't have had it at all and it's uranium sitting in their network. You know, that data is very powerful. It's a great natural resource but left to decay, it's very dangerous. So we shouldn't be collecting it. We definitely shouldn't be keeping it. But we need to trade that off with the risk of getting rid of things too soon, you know. So another good example of that in the UK is the Windrush scandal that happened a few years ago that resulted in maybe 70-something people, I think, being unlawfully deported, the same as Vivian Salon, because the department had destroyed the arrival cards of the original Windrush immigrants who came on the ships early And by destroying those cards, then people had no recourse. They had no evidence of their right to remain, their leave to remain here in the UK when the hostile environment policy was introduced. So they were deported because those records had been destroyed before they really should have been 
They still had continuing value. They still had continuing use. They were destroyed for a range of reasons, mostly because the organisation was moving buildings and didn't want to bring all the archives from the basement to the new building. (laughs) But by destroying that information, that disenfranchised another group of people. So you do have to trade off what's important to keep with what's really important to destroy and balance that risk and value of data. Yeah. And how does this play into something say in another industry like financial services, is that an area where you've explored and is that something that I guess can castle point, does the technology help in that industry as well? Yeah, financial services is a key vertical for us too because, again, just like universities, financial organisations hold a lot of information about a lot of people and they retain it for a very long time. Financial services are more likely to be attempting to monetize that data, so there is an incentive to keep it. Universities really don't need to keep old student records. It's convenient too, but it's maybe not so valuable. But financial services are now faced with the challenge of deciding how valuable is this data to us versus the risk. So we've seen in Australia the largest breach I think we've ever had of Latitude Financial recently, which I feel like maybe that was 14 million records, perhaps. So, you know, that's a huge amount of data to spill that now questions are being asked as to why was it captured in the first place? Why was it kept? So financial services are very heavily regulated. Anywhere in the world, they're regulated and they provide services across jurisdictions, which means the regulations cross jurisdictions as well. The impacts and the implications on the share price and on trust and reputation can be very high from a breach like this. And the cost of remediation and recovery are very, very high too. So recently, what was previously, I think, the largest breach in Australia, but not for long, was the Optus breach, which is our second largest telco in Australia. And when they discovered their breach, they had to rally 120 people from the business to try to identify what the impact of that breach was and try to respond to it. They spent huge amounts of money developing their own software basically in-house to try to do what we did, like I explained in the case study before about the university. And in fact, their partners, their kind of big four partners, couldn't help them and wouldn't help them at that time at such short notice. So the cost, just the cost to respond was very, very high and very crippling for the organisation and it still took months to actually get transparency to the community about what had actually been spilled and what that meant. And all those months as they went by eroded confidence and reputation further and further and affected the share price more and more. So the costs of a breach to financial services are very, very high, even higher probably than almost any other vertical. Yeah, and I think I try to use the segue of financial services because I know you had you have some views and opinions on a recent collapse of a bank, the Silicon Valley Bank. So I know that also stimulates a lot of interest in the tech world. But I wanted to just get your take on that and you know, how do you foresee the landscape changing? for, say, startups, investors in in the wake of such an upheaval? And what do you think could have been done differently? It's hard to predict, isn't it? Because it's kind of unprecedented just how quickly that happened. And what seems to have driven the speed of it is the culture, particularly around the use of messaging apps to have these kind of clubs of investors talking about what's going on and what they're going to do. 
that's something that's unavoidable these days. There are different ways that people communicate now and you can't really regulate or control for those. So we might see the same kind of things happening in the future, not just for banks but in for other kind of key investments as well. But, you know, that remains to be seen. The collapse of the bank didn't affect us. We're an Australian company. We're based in, the, in Australia and in the UK, so we didn't have any impacts technically from that. Although, of course, we have seen a general increased level of anxiety in the market, particularly from investors around startups and scale-ups, just because of the potential instability that's coming from various areas. So from contractions of regional banks and, and banks like SVB, and also the war and also the recessions, such as they are. And, of course, that has that has pressure on valuations and market caps and on growth plans for startups and scale-ups. But something that we've focused on from the beginning and we continue to focus on is self-sufficiency. There's been a pretty kind of frothy market for a while that I think has led to tech companies maybe over-leveraging in terms of, of their plans for seeking capital and, and expecting it to always be available and suddenly maybe it won't be. So profitability really is the key, a target for profitability. And even if that's a way away for a startup or a scale-up, being able to show the roadmap to that is going to be the way to get confidence of investors anyway to continue accessing that capital. So, And it's more possible now than ever. It used to be harder. In fact, before COVID, it was much harder. So we were kind of launching the company just before COVID happened. And I remember I was breastfeeding at the time. My daughter, she's four now. And at that time, Gavin and I, as the founders, we were flying interstate probably once a week and organising childcare for the toddler. I was trying to pump milk in these airports and, and put it in the Qantas Club lounge fridge. Like it was so hard. It was really punishing. And as soon as COVID happened, actually, suddenly the world discovered that you could just meet on Teams. Like you could just meet on Zoom. So for us, it actually opened up access to the whole world because attitudes changed. And that's something that tech companies can lean into now in terms of the efficiency. There's no longer an expectation to have boots on the ground. There's no longer an expectation to travel everywhere for every client meeting. There's no longer an expectation to have big flagship bricks and mortar offices in towns and cities. You can access resources from further afield, which might be more economical and, and better quality or higher skilled resources. There's so much more flexibility now, which makes it actually possible to target profitability, whereas before we had to pour a lot of money into things that were really kind of seemed fairly wasteful. So I, I did shift gears there a little bit, just jumping into the SVB collapse, but I know it's something we wanted to speak about. So in terms of for the layman or anyone listening in who's worried about a destabilized future, how wary should we be? I'm included in that. And is there any good news that would come out of all the confusion that happened with, say, the likes of Silicon Valley? I think that every day we learn a new reason to be more self-sufficient. And that can only be a good thing. But what we need to think about is that not everyone has the same access to options for self-sufficiency, right? So, we can see that cost of living pressures, collapsing banks, data breaches all the time. We're really living in kind of a post-privacy world, number one. So you can't expect 
to have any privacy at all. Just assume that anyone who has your data will eventually be breached, number one. So that means that we have to worry about credit and our credit rating. We have to worry about control of our own money in our own banks because we're at so much risk of being impersonated or being defrauded because we've lost control of our unique identifiers. And with the rise of artificial intelligence and things like deep fakes and chat GPT, we're quickly losing control of our own biometric identities as well. It's very easy now for someone to clone your voice and pretend to be you. If you have been in a breach where fingerprints were taken and other biometrics, then you're at risk as well of those being reverse engineered and used in some capacity. And you can't change your fingerprints, right? So we just have to expect that the combination of the security threat environment we live in and the financially unstable environment that we work in means those things will continue to intersect and force multiply each other. So what that means for a financial lens for individuals is, yes, you've got to be very careful about your credit rating. You've got to be very careful about being impersonated from a financial point of view, who's doing what with your bank accounts, what information is being retained by your financial services providers and for how long do they still need to have it? Can you ask them to destroy it, which you should be able to if they're under GDPR, for example? Let's take a little bit more control back of our own data. I got a parking fine a little while ago and they're still sending me letters about this parking fine, which I did pay for and I sent the screenshot of the 50p that I paid for this car park. So I don't owe them any money, but they asked for my phone number. They emailed me and said, please provide your contact number so we can talk to you about the parking fine. I said, no, I'm not. You don't need my phone number. Email will be fine. Thank you. And they're the kind of choices we need to start making. No real estate agent, I'm not going to email you my passport in the clear, right? No bank, I'm not going to email you a copy of my identification details. I will come into a branch and you can cite them, you know. And then when I finished with that financial institution, I'm going to ask them to destroy my information. So that's number one. Number two, from a business point of view, we need to be thinking about the same kind of questions. So what is our relationship with financial services providers? How are we using and accessing that credit? And how are they using our data in return? because you can lose a lot more money from your business account, either through the collapse of a bank or a breach, than you probably can from your personal checking account. So again, it comes back to the risk about artificial intelligence and chatbots. Business email compromise is a really significant way people lose huge amounts of money from their businesses, because somebody impersonates the boss and says, please transfer this money straight away. I'm stuck at Gatwick of all places, like help me. It's going to get easier to do that now as well. So understanding our security posture, again, understanding the threats that affect us, understanding and managing our data and protecting it as much as possible will help us manage unstable financial institutions, which themselves, it has been shown over and over again, have very limited governance, very poor record-keeping control and very low security posture themselves. And we've spoken about government institutions, financial services, banks, other businesses, say small businesses, startups, how are they to make sure they're protected long-term? Do you have any advice around that? Yeah, look, the number one thing is to know your own data. You have to know what you have and where it is. That's the absolute baseline. That's what our system does is it reads everything in a network. So it tells you what you have and where it is and what it's about. 
and what inherent risk it has, what value and what rules apply to it and whether they're being met. And also who's doing what to it, that's really important too. So you know that day to day. If you don't have a picture of what you're holding, you can't protect it. You can't manage what you can't measure, they say. Now, there are different ways to do that. So in a very small organisation, the way to do that is to, number one, try to consolidate that information as much as possible. We want to avoid duplicates. We want to avoid copies. We want to be sending links instead of attachments. Let's just minimise the amount of data we have and the amount of places that it's stored, number one. Number two, what do we really need here and what can we get rid of? Because, again, it is like uranium. It seems very valuable and you went to a lot of effort to mine it, right, to collect that information. That's what we spend most of our money on is generating information, right? That's really where the work goes these days unless you're a watchmaker or something. So I know it was hard to get it, but do we really need to keep it? Because there are lots of good reasons to get rid of it. Number one, security breaches. Number two, privacy. Number three, discovery. So let's say someone comes back to you and says, I used to be a customer. I once paid 50p for parking at your parking garage and I want you to give me all the information you have about me. Well, you have to do that, right, depending on what size you are as an organisation. That's hard. That's time-consuming That's difficult to go through and search and find that information and not just find it but then go through and cleanse it and make sure by handing it over you're not also handing over someone else's personal information or anything that you want to keep secret and then give it back to them in a secure way. That's hard too. So if you don't have it at all, good news. Nothing is responsive because you've already done the job of destroying that information. So knowing what you have and making sure what you're keeping is minimal is really the best way that we can protect ourselves at whatever size or stage we are. Yeah. And just going on to some final thoughts, um, I have just a couple of additional questions just to pick your brain a bit further. Is there anything exciting happening in your industry that hasn't reached the mainstream conversation? Or if I flip it around, is there anything that you feel is not getting enough attention? You can go either, either way. What's about to get a lot more attention and what is starting to get attention now is ethical AI. So this is something we've been talking about for a long, long time. And it's good to see sometimes it takes years and years for this to come into the consciousness, right, but it eventually gets there. Just like for years we've been talking about the relationship between records management and security, which always were very, very separate. We've always said they're connected, right? If you're not managing your information properly, you're not protecting it properly. And then finally that's now becoming key in the public consciousness. We've got people saying, why did that bank still have my stuff? Why are they retaining things for seven years? Regulators are talking about it, right? So we saw it took years, but something that we've been literally banging the drum about for five years is now in the public consciousness. And what we're starting to see, which we've also been talking about for years, is an emergence of the discussion around ethical AI. Now, that's not to say this hasn't been a key topic for a long time because it has, but mostly among academics and mostly among regulators. So we've had ethical AI principles for a long time with the OECD. Lots of governments have been talking about ethical AI. But as you know, in the last week or two, it's suddenly really come to a head where a whole bunch of kind of tech leaders from around the world have said, woo back, like pump the brakes. This is starting to feel kind of icky to me and not very ethical. It's like, yes, correct. (laughs) That's exactly right. 
Because when we use artificial intelligence to inform our decisions and when those decisions have impacts on other people, we have to be incredibly careful about the journey from A to B. So in a very, very simple example, which is not AI at all, but it's a great example, another Australian story, RoboDebt, we called it. So a few years ago, our social services department decided to try a new way to calculate welfare debt. So, you know, some people get overpaid their welfare, they have to pay it back. Well, this government department thought, won't it be efficient if we just use an algorithm and do some maths and just calculate automatically everyone who owes a debt and we just send them a letter, just send them a letter that says, you owe us all this money. And they pumped out all these debts. And of course, it became known as robo-debt because it was just a robot. And there wasn't a human involved in the process. And under ethical AI principles, a human must be responsible for decisions that require discretion. And there was no human in the loop in this decision-making. The machine calculated, sent the debt, calculated, sent the debt. People died by suicide as a result of this. It had huge implications. It was very, very harmful because these, again, are the most vulnerable people in the community. And they're getting sent a notice that says, you owe us $7,500. No way to ever pay that back right? So hugely, hugely stressful and turns out not lawful, not correct, bad algorithm. The same thing happens when we use AI, when we use algorithmic AI. So if you take the example of supervised machine learning, which is one of the more common forms of AI that gets used, if we were to try to use supervised ML to apply regulatory rules, like Castle Point does, to say how long we should keep something or whether someone needs to go to jail if something gets spilled, right, to apply regulatory rules to data. What we'd have to do is we'd have to provide 1,000 to 10,000 good examples of documents that match that rule to the machine. That's actually very hard to do. So when we're talking about regulation that's complex, how do I go to the business and say, give me 1,000 good examples of final approved versions of asbestos remediation policy? go. Like they can't do it. You can't curate enough data that's accurate enough against that specific regulation to train the model. So you end up stuffing in and shoehorning stuff that's not really a good match. So if you can even find it at all, then you've trained the model on something that isn't really exactly right. Then what you have to do is supervise the learning. You know, the the machine says, "I, I think I found one. And you have to say, yes, no, yes, no, thousands and thousands of times. And then if you can get through that process, it's going to start giving you results. But it will give you the result, and the result comes from a black box. It's obfuscated. So it says, good news, this document, this regulation applies. And you say, great, why is that? And it says, it just is. Because don't you remember? Like we learned this three years ago. I read all those documents. So trust me, this is the right answer. And what you can't do is you can't trace it back. So it's not transparent, it's not auditable, and it's not explainable. And that means that if that rule says that person owes $7,500 and you go and issue them a notice and they say, well, I'm not sure I believe that, like can you show me the reasoning, you have to say, no, not really, just trust us. You owe that 50p. (laughs) I don't though, I paid the money. And they say, "Mm, computer says you do, right? That's not ethical, that's not traceable, it's not transparent. So when we designed our AI, right from the beginning, we knew we couldn't use supervised ML. We couldn't use anything that wasn't explicable. So we used, we had to really invent a new kind of AI. We used rules as code. 
on which we train the system on the regulation, not on the legacy source data. And then we show exactly why something matched the way that it did. So you can interrogate it, which you need to do. Machines aren't smarter than people. Machines are just machines. They just process stuff. They process it in the way that you tell them to process it. So you need to be able to go in and understand and interrogate why it did the thing that it did. And are you have you jumped on the chat GBT train? Yeah, oh, I use it all the time. I love it. I use it just to create, like make me a template for this or make me a template for that. It's a great starting point. But there are big concerns about chat GPT from my point of view, particularly around privacy and security. So because it's such an accessible, easy tool, it's very tempting to use it for things you shouldn't use it for. So I wrote a LinkedIn post recently about this, shared an article that someone had written, and they had found that there was an organization that kind of blocks attempts to use chat GPT on this corporate network on a bunch of networks. And some of the examples they found were a doctor trying to upload a patient's case file to ChatGPT so that ChatGPT could make a letter for the insurance company for the doctor. We've seen Samsung in big trouble lately for uploading proprietary information and presentations into ChatGPT to get it to make outputs. It's so tempting to do that. So number one, you've got a risk of causing a data spill because you've sent that data somewhere it's not authorised to be, you've spilled your trade secrets. Number two, that then becomes part of that learning. So, I mean, technically the learning on ChatGPT was done pre-2021, but they still own the data. That's the terms and conditions. So whatever you feed into there, you can't ever ask for it to be brought back out again. It's just gone into the mesh Right. So and it might appear for someone else. And that's something else we saw is that people were able to kind of do reverse attacks on the system and pull queries that people had inputted as well. So big risks around what we put into a system like that. It's so tempting, like you can see. But again, if you don't understand and you're not cognizant of the threats and the way that data can be used and misused and what it could mean, you're just not going to think of that. And that's the kind of education we need around what these risks really are when we use these productivity tools. Yeah, exactly. I know it's that. And then they're going to, when they link it to the internet, then then again, that also opens up another range of worries. I guess with the ethical AI, do you think that there will be some stauncher regulation put in place? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely will. Yeah, it's already coming down the pipe. And again, we've had the principles for a long time. They've been voluntary principles, codes of conduct, but they will start to be enforced. They'll start to be mandated. And that'll be driven. That's actually being driven a bit from the commercial side. So the corporate world is saying, pump the brakes on this and let's get it right. Let's be careful. Let's not make a singularity, (laughs) destroy civilization. But also I think they need a little beat. They need a bit of time to work out the best way and most sustainable way to monetize this kind of tech. And on the flip side, we have governments and regulators also saying, yeah, look, for once we agree, we need to make sure that how this is created and used is as ethical as possible. And the good news is we've got years and years of academic rigor around talking and thinking about this. Like we kind of know what needs to happen, but now we just need to to make it happen from the top down. Okay, so let's talk, we've spoken about AI now, and let's talk a little bit about you. I'm not too sure if we prepared you for some of these questions, but is there a, an example of 
a time that you failed and you dusted yourself off and you then fought back and achieved a certain goal. Do you have any examples or anything like that springs to mind? I feel like I fail a little bit every day at something. And I think that's really common. So for entrepreneurs particularly, but I think just for a lot of people, there's a lot you want to do, you know, and I've got lists and lists. I've got a notebook full of all these things that I want to do. And as I do them, I put a red line through them, right? And it's rare that I'll just skip one. I will get them all done, but I won't get them all done when I thought I would or how I thought I would. It's very hard to fit everything in. But when you've got an appetite for doing more and more, all you can do is just keep trying and not be deterred by failing to do it and get it done. I don't have a story, unfortunately, like a juicy story of a really significant failure, probably for a few reasons, one of which is that I'm incredibly careful. And the reason that I think I rarely make mistakes, the reason I'm never wrong is because I'm always right. And the reason I'm always right is because I don't risk being wrong. Like I just won't risk saying something that isn't correct if it's important. Like I will check and recheck and double check. And it's if you have that diligence of checking and checking and checking and dotting the lowercase j's, right, all the time, it's hard to really make bad mistakes. It's easy to make decisions that you then think, yeah, I probably could have gone the other way on that. But what humans are really good at is rationalizing our own choices, right? We might not make the right decision, but we'll always make the decision right. Like we're really good at that. Like, no, I definitely did the right thing. Maybe you didn't, but there's no control group. There's no sliding doors, alternate reality, you know, that we can go jump into like the spider verse or something. So the fact is you'll never know. That's my philosophy anyway. Just keep trying to do everything. Be as careful as you possibly can be. And then whatever you do do, just make the best out of it. Yeah, solid, solid advice. I'm going to take some of that. And then this is probably a bit more fun, but do you have a guilty technology pleasure? Apart from ChatGPT? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's a good example. <laughs> that's not a bad example. A guilty tech pleasure. Do you know, I do just love to scroll on my phone and I do still use TikTok, even though it's no longer socially acceptable to do so as a cyber professional. And what I have had to do is make the text on my phone really huge, like a little old grandma, because I was finding that I was sort of scrolling on my phone and reading so many things for so long, I was getting really bad headaches. So my little cone of shame is how big the text is on my phone because I'm literally always looking at a screen. It's very hard to break away from that. But I've actually been making efforts to have less screen time myself. So I've got a little task for myself. And again, I don't always succeed, but I try every day to just do some reading from an actual book. I try every day to walk 5Ks or 10Ks every day. And most days I do succeed at that. But I often fail. And when I fail, I can be found after the kids have all gone to bed and I should be sleeping, scrolling my phone with very large text. (laughs) And how would your family describe what you do versus, say, what your colleagues describe what you do? That's a really interesting thing to think about. My kids would say that I'm the boss And that's my job is just being the boss and telling everyone what to do, which is true. If only it were that simple. 
I think the way my family sees my job, because I'm married to my co-founder, right? So it's we really do understand what each other's jobs are. The broader family just know that we work really hard and I think they think we're really clever and we probably were clever once upon a time before our brains turned to mush from too many long weeks and late nights and I know that they're proud of what we're doing and I think the reason they're proud is because we have a vision right we have a mission for what we're doing and it's always been about making the world a better place for everyone making people safer making better decisions with information and they know what we're motivated by and they've seen how hard we've worked to achieve it. But we don't talk about it a lot in the family. When we see our family, we just want to talk about them. But I think they get it and definitely our colleagues and our team know, you know, they really understand what the mission is. We recently did a, we do kind of surveys of staff to make sure everyone's going well and kind of vibe check the organisation And I think on the mission, understanding the mission, we had 100% across the whole team. Everyone, you know, strongly or very strongly agrees that they understand the mission and the vision of the company. So we really, family and colleagues, we're really all on the same page. Great. Well, that was a good answer. And then finally, before we clock off, are there any, you mentioned reading, are you reading any good books? Are you watching anything interesting that you'd like to share? No, I wish I was watching something interesting. Watching isn't something that I can usually fit in except on long-haul flights. So I tend to binge-watch episodes of things 30,000 feet in the air and then have no recollection of any of them by the time I've landed in a new time zone. So I can't give you any any good tips on TV shows. And in terms of reading, I literally just pick up free books from the train station little exchange library And it could honestly be anything. And the last one I picked up was a really cool book, actually, which I would love to tell you the author of, but I don't remember, about a murder mystery set at Fountains Abbey in, I don't know, 19th century. That was a good book. I would recommend it if I could remember what it's called. But, you know, it doesn't really matter what you read, I don't think. I think just picking up a book that smells like paper and turning the pages and not looking at a screen for a while is very restorative. And my recommendation is just do it. Just pick up a book from the train station and open it. It will do wonders for your quality of life. Well, on that great little life advice, we're going to wrap up the show. So thank you so much for joining us, Rachel. It's been a pleasure having you. I've learned a lot. And yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you. Great to see you. Yeah. And if you did like what you hear, please do like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I think we're on 90% of the podcast platforms and we look forward to welcoming our next guests. Thank you. Thank you.